pictures I'm going to show you. I want you to be able to see them. So, hi guys. How many of you guys like to get stuff in the mail? Bubba says it depends what it is. Well, I would agree with that. Um, usually as an adult, we're not quite as excited to get stuff in the mail because usually it's bills and stuff. But when you're young like you guys, if you get something in the mail, it's usually something cool, like a letter or a card or the new, or the new Lego magazine. Yeah. Well, it is kind of cool. Did the new one come yet? Okay. We're, we're waiting for the March issue. All right. Well, my son Keegan loves to get mail, and you guys can put up the first slide. <clears throat> this is my mom. This is Keegan's granny, and Keegan with granny, and no, that's not my Christmas tree. Um, my house isn't quite that big. But my mom writes to Keegan almost every week. She sends him something in the mail, and she lives locally. She just lives up on top of Blue Mountain, so she's not that far away, but she knows how much he loves to get mail. So, Keegan, what, what's the best part about Granny's letters? She gives me one dollar. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't quite going for that, but okay. <laughs> she does, yes. Um, she sends him a dollar in every one, and yeah, here's, here's the dollar. Um, here, yeah, that's yours. Um, so in her letters, my mom is a really godly lady. So she always, she tells a little story. A lot of times she tells stories about me when I was a kid. Um, but she'll tell a little story or what's going on up there in the woods. But she always has a Bible verse and sort of a point or, or a moral to the, to the letter. Um, so I thought that I would read you the most recent one she sent. You can switch to the next slide. Um, this is the card that... My mom, Granny, sent to Keegan on January 20th. You see all the kids up there? It says, the children on this card are dressed for cold weather, and that's what you will have to wear this week, right? It's been pretty cold this week. Cold Arctic air will be coming down from the north. Some snow, but not a lot. And she was pretty right about that. Granny continues. She says, I learned on TV this morning that some hummingbirds are still in our area. I thought they all flew south. Next year, I will need to keep our feeder out longer. In the spring, the hummingbirds come to our family room window to tell me it's time to put out the feeder. Isn't that amazing? They remember every year that I feed them. The Bible tells us in Colossians 3.23 to do everything as unto the Lord. And that means that we should do our very best in everything we do. So let us try to do that this week. And we can start by being thankful for everything. How about warm houses? Food to eat, families to love, eyes to see. She says, I just finished reading a book entitled 1,000 Gifts. And the author listed 1,000 things for which she was thankful. And then she was ready to add more. So Granny's question to Keegan and to all of you is, what would you list if you were making a list of the things that you were thankful for? What would be on your list? A house. Yeah, we're thankful for a house, especially in the cold. A bed. Yep, a bed for sleeping in. Dolls. Yep, dolls to play with. Friends. 
our friends. A blanket. Yeah, I'm happy for a blanket too. It's awful cold. Food. Joyful. You're thankful for being joyful. That's awesome. Warm air. Yep, warm air, our furnaces. That's awful nice. Uh, a lot of the people that are recovering from the, the hurricane, they still don't have heat. Um, buy crochet. Yep, your crocheting, crafts, and fun things to do. So we're thankful for lots and lots of things. Oh, Carlos has one. Breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thankful for breakfast, too, or I'd be real hungry right now. So let's, let's say a prayer. And remember this week to be, to be thankful that everything that we do, we're to do as unto the Lord. We're supposed to do our best. And one of the ways that we can do that is to notice all the wonderful things that God has done for us and given us and be grateful. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for everything that you have given us. We thank you for our homes and our friends and our families. We, we thank you for the ability to be joyful. And most importantly, we thank you for breakfast, Lord. And we just ask that you go with us as we go through our week and help us to keep our minds focused on being grateful and thankful to you. In your name, amen. amen. Now, Pastor Patty has a snack, so you guys can follow her out. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew 26. We'll be reading Matthew 26, 36 to 46. Or you can just follow along on the screen. <coughs> Excuse me. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch for me with, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back again, he again found them sleeping, because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. You know, I remember my wedding day like it was yesterday. Isn't that right, Shell? In fact, this past summer on our anniversary, I posted a picture online of Shell and I on our wedding day. Somebody even tried to congratulate me for remembering my anniversary. And I was like, come on, really? I'm better than that. Besides, you don't ever forget forever love. <laughs> Feel free to use that, gentlemen. Feel free to use that one. Actually, when I, when I asked Shell about our wedding day the other day, she said, it was all a blur, but she remembered the peace she felt throughout the day. She remembered the stresses that disappeared and the joy she felt seeing everything that had been planned months in advance all start to come together. 
She remembered the first time we saw each other when we met for pictures at the Capitol. I mean, how can you not, right? I mean, that might have been the last productive thing to happen at the state Capitol. <laughs> Just saying. Shell also remembered us laughing. She remembered us crying. I mean, her crying during the ceremony. She remembered my mom passing out trophies at the reception. Yes, that really did happen. <laughs> Even today, it is humbling to think back and to remember all the people who came out to celebrate our day together. You know, I remember some things, too. I remember waking up that morning, calm as could be, of course. I remember meeting with my boys. I remember presenting them with groomsmen gifts, and I remember working so hard and planning this speech to give to them about the great meaning and, 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 and friendship and brotherhood and everything they meant to me. And I remember them just taking the gifts and tossing them in the bag and be like, dude, we got to get dressed. Enough of these speeches. I remember seeing Shell, my bride, in her gown for the first time. It was pretty awesome. I actually remember Pastor Woody causing me to mess up and not repeat after him during the vows. It was all his fault. I remember the stanky leg we walked into the reception to. I remember the food. <laughs> I remember the dancing. I remember the music. I remember the memories and the good wishes of family and friends. But I also remember not being nervous. I don't remember the freak out that sometimes accompanies wedding days. I don't remember stress that day. All I remember is thinking, let's get the show on the road. Forever is about to begin. Obviously, most of the reason things went along so perfectly was because it was all God-ordained. God had brought us together. God had planned our life together. God was the one who would carry us together and always. And God was the one who would be glorified in Shell and I becoming one. But a small part of my lack of stress, the lack of pressure, the lack of a real freak out was because I just simply vowed not to freak out. See, I have never been able to figure out what all the fuss and stress is about on wedding days. I've never been able to figure out why brides and grooms get so worked up. Bear with me with this, right? I mean, hopefully, before the wedding, all the hard stuff has been done, right? I mean, hopefully, before the wedding, both of you are sure that God has brought you together. I mean, hopefully, before the wedding, both of you have made sure that God has made you for each other. Hopefully, you really know each other, really like each other, and really love each other. Hopefully the two of you are on the same page spiritually, emotionally, practically, financially. That's just to, live a few, that's just to list a few shillies, right? Some say, well, you don't really know a person until you get married. The thing is this, though. If you don't know the other person well enough to at least have some idea, some idea, if you haven't really gotten to know the person, if you haven't really gotten to like the person, if you haven't really gotten to, to love the person for who they are, the real person, then you probably shouldn't be getting married. No. See, I think that the reason people get nervous on wedding days is because the finality of it all, right? I don't just think, you know, it's the vows they make to each other before God and before friends and family. Wedding days celebrate not just the beginning of life together, but also an end to life as simply individuals. The end of the life of I and the start of the life of us. See, before the wedding day, people get and hold on to ideas of, of who they would like to be with, right? They have dreams of what life is supposed to be like. They have everything set in its place. They have timelines. They have life plans. They have the house. They have the kids. They have the spouse. Everything is conceptualized in their head. 
But on the wedding day, all of that comes face to face with the reality of the one you're about to commit to. Your dreams come face to face with reality. Your plans come face to face with forever. You know, it's a little bit like how a child, you know, changes what they want to be when they grow up multiple times each day. You know, I would want to be a pilot, a chief, a businessman, a doctor, a lawyer, and that was probably all just on a Thursday. But inevitably, the child blinks and adulthood has come. Brides and grooms blink too and the wedding day comes. On the wedding day, the bride and groom must accept and embrace the reality of both of them becoming one. They must start and continue to build dreams together. In the same way, the adult must put off the hour-by-hour career changes one had as a child. The adult must accept and embrace whatever career road God calls for, opens doors for, and that he or she has worked for. This wrestling with the dreams in our head and the reality of our everyday scenes is one of the many things that make us uniquely human. You know, this is why I love, absolutely love, the passages in the gospel that tell of Jesus in Gethsemane. Most of the time when we meet Jesus in the gospels, he is God. It is God who shows power over creation, turning water into wine, calming the storms with a simple verbal command, and walking on the sea. It is God who has great compassion and casts out demons. It is God who heals diseases. It is God who raises people from the dead. Jesus is more than man because he had the power to forgive sins and to call sinners to repentance. He is God because only he is worthy of worship. He is God because in the scriptures we see that he teaches with authority never witnessed before. He teaches with authority that opened the eyes and that opened the hearts of the story of God's glory each time he preached, in each city he reached, and in every disciple he walked with. Jesus is God. Jesus is God because like his father in the Old Testament, this is one of my favorite things, he almost seems obsessed with providing food for his people. The miracles of feeding 4,000, not including women and children. The miracles of feeding 5,000, again, not even including women and children, only show small glimpses of his love and his power to provide for his people like only God can. Jesus is God. Jesus is God because he has this power to redeem. You know, he redeemed Matthew, the hated tax collector. He gave dignity to Zacchaeus, another of the hated tax collectors. He not only forgave Peter, who denied him not once, not twice, but three times. He forgave Peter, and then he restored Peter to work in the early church and for the glory of our Father's kingdom. And what of Nicodemus? or the Samaritan woman, or the man at the Bethesda pool, or the man who had to be lowered through the roof, or the thief on the cross, and the list goes on and on and on. Jesus has power to redeem, amen? Amen. When we meet Jesus in the Gospels and the Scriptures, he is God. This is why John, the one who probably knew Jesus the most, when he looked at the person who worked in Jesus, he says, Jesus has come to make the Father known. This is why John notes when Jesus says, Before Abraham I am. Because yes, Jesus really did mean that he was the God of Abraham. Jesus really did mean that he was before Abraham. Jesus really did mean that he was the God of the Old Testament. To John, the man who arguably knew Jesus best, to know Jesus was to know God the Father. To see Jesus was to see God the Father. When we see Jesus in the Gospels, he is God. Amen? We see him as God time and time again in the Gospels, in the rest of the New Testament. But Jesus was also fully man. 
You know, we might not see this as much in the scriptures, but we do see it that he's very much a man. He laughed and he cried. He knew joy and he knew sorrow. He experienced acceptance and he experienced rejection. He felt happiness and he felt pain. And in these passages of Jesus in Gethsemane, I believe we get a window into one of Jesus' most human moments. Remember the wrestling with dreams in our head? And then the reality of our everyday scenes? That's one of the things that makes us human, right? And what captures Jesus in the garden better than wrestling? What captures Jesus praying not once, not twice, but three times, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. What captures Jesus being more fully human than that? See, in eternity past, Jesus knew he was the Messiah of the world. When Adam and Eve sinned, Jesus knew only he could be our salvation. When covenant was made with Abram and all the peoples of the world, Jesus knew that only he was the true blessing to come. When Moses received commands to establish God's set-apart people, Jesus knew that only he could one day make us holy and righteous before God our Father. When David became Israel's greatest king, even he prayed to Jesus, calling the one to come from his line, Lord. Yes, David knew he was an earthly king, set up for God's earthly kingdom. But Jesus knew that he was the son of God, amen? Jesus knew that he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. When Mary and Joseph unknowingly left Jesus in Jerusalem, Jesus stayed at the temple. He stayed in his father's house because only he could be about his father's business. His whole life, Jesus grew in stature. He grew in wisdom. He grew in favor of God and man. His sinless life, his teachings, his miracles, his entire being here on earth was to glorify God, was to make the Father known, and was to be our Savior. His whole life, Jesus knew he had to go to Calvary. He predicted it many times. He knew he had to suffer many things. He knew he had to be rejected, not just by the people, but by the elders, by the chief priests, by the teachers of the law. Jesus even knew that one of his own would betray him and that most of his disciples on the cross would deny and abandon him. Jesus knew that he must be killed so that after three days he could rise again. Matter of fact, when Peter tried to say otherwise, what did Jesus do? He rebuked Peter. He challenged Peter and all the disciples and he said, let us set apart the plans and concerns of man and let us submit to the plans and concerns of God our Father. Jesus knew what was ahead of him. But then comes Gethsemane. Jesus knew what was ahead when he set his face to Jerusalem, when he marched on a donkey on the sound of, to the sound of hosannas and the praises of the crowd. He knew what was ahead as he celebrated Passover with his disciples, as he instituted the Lord's Supper. Jesus knew what was to come, why he came, why he was here. But then comes Gethsemane. You see, in Gethsemane, we are introduced to a Jesus who knows his reality, the hour was at hand. He would soon be betrayed. He would soon be seized up like a common criminal. He would soon be falsely trialed, cruelly beaten, and punished. He would soon be lifted upon Calvary's cross for the sin of all mankind, for the sin of me, for the sin of you. He would soon suffer and he would soon die. The hour was at hand and Jesus knew it. But here comes Gethsemane. 
He still prays at Gethsemane three times, not once, not twice. Three times he prays, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. See, the greatness here of our Jesus is that even in arguably the greatest scene of his humanity, even in him wrestling with God and his God-ordained fate, even with him fighting with this impending reality that being in Gethsemane represented, even with him wrestling and knowing he has to die, even with him wrestling and then moving to actually accepting and embracing his destiny, Jesus submits to the will of God the Father through wholehearted obedience and through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. He had all the concepts in his head. He had all the life from eternity past to his 30-so years on the earth. He knew it was to come, but until he embraced it and accepted it, he was not ready. And in being ready, he realized the only way to go up to Calvary was to submit to the will of God our Father. We believe our Jesus, amen? We believe our Jesus who was God but took on flesh and became men. We believe our Jesus through whom all things were created and the one who the Bible says hold all things together, but who came to our world at the appointed time to be the salvation for us. We believe our Jesus because he made God known to us and because we are known to him. We believe our Jesus because he was obedient. And as Paul says to the Philippians, even unto death for our sakes. This morning, as we continue learning what it means to be brethren in Christ, as we continue, you know, let us continue by examining another one of our core values. The core values, again, are the beliefs of who we are, the truths that we desire to be self-evident among us, the essence of who God has called us to be before him and before our world. Like I stated the last few times, knowing our history is the first part of learning what it means to be brethren in Christ. The second part in learning what it means to be brethren in Christ is knowing our values, knowing the things we hold dear, knowing the truths we live to set forth, knowing the central beliefs that make us who we are. My goal again this morning, and until we get through all of our core values in the coming months, is for us to examine these beliefs that are so etched in our DNA that they encompass who we are as brethren in Christ. Our core values, again, were born from the Holy Spirit and with reliance on God. They were born after studying the scriptures together. They were born after prayerfully seeking insights from God in how he has revealed himself to us in our history, in our tradition, and today. This morning, we will examine our fourth core value. Please read with me. Following Jesus, we value wholehearted obedience to Christ Jesus through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Let's read that again. I can hear you. Following Jesus, we value... Amen. You know, one of the things I love the most about Jesus is that everyone has an opinion of him. You know, no matter where you are in the world, you have an opinion on Jesus. No matter where you are on your faith journey or in your personal beliefs, you have an opinion on Jesus. For example, you know, my mom's dad was a Muslim chief. And Muslims learned in the Quran, these are the things they learned in the Quran, that Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus was born of a virgin, that Jesus is the word of God, that Jesus will come again, and that Jesus fulfills all of scripture. But all of that is completely differently understood to the Muslim and to the Christian. You see, to the Muslim, Jesus was a good Muslim. 
He was a prophet with very good teaching. He was not greater than the last prophet, Muhammad. He was only one in line of thousands of prophets. And for the Muslim, the problem with Jesus is threefold, right? They do not accept that Jesus is God because God would never come down to meet us. There is no incarnation. They do not believe that God can be sacrificed for our sins, so there is no crucifixion. And since they do not believe that Jesus died on the cross, you better believe that obviously he didn't rise from the dead. There is no resurrection. Traditionally, Judaism sees Jesus as one of many false messiahs. They hold firm to the signs that needed to be present when Messiah comes. They say those signs were not present when Jesus was here. The divinity of Jesus, interesting to Judaism, the divinity of Jesus being God is never an issue because God is one. And Jesus isn't even the Messiah, so why would we worry about him being God? They reject Jesus as Savior because only God can forgive sins. Does that open your mind to some of the the, the tension with Jesus and the Pharisees? They reject him as Messiah because only God can forgive sins. And they still live and pray for Messiah to come today. Every single day they wake up and they say, Messiah will come today. And that's just two of the faiths that we most, you know, we mostly interact with in our everyday scenes. You know, but there's a growing third North American faith. And that one is the denial of any higher power. It seems to be growing each day. It seems to be in many of the everyday people we see walking down the street. They have thoughts about Jesus, too. You know, one common line of this mainstream thinking of North Americans is adopting this quote, and you've heard it before. It's attributed to Muhammad Gandhi. You know what the quote is? It says, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. That is a direct challenge for us to not just be believers of Jesus Christ, but to be followers of Jesus Christ. Amen? This is a call for us not just to come to church. This is a call for us not just to come to church, but to be the church. Amen? That because of our faith, that because of our obedience, that because of our submission to God's will, because of how we choose to live, we're going to make our Christ known. This is a challenge for us not just to speak about Christ, not just to talk about Christ, but to live and to love in deed and in truth. To live and to love like Jesus our Christ lived and like he loved. Amen? Amen. You know, as brethren in Christ, we look at our brothers and sisters outside the faith and we say to them, the incarnation of Jesus Christ matters. Amen? Amen? It matters that God came down and took on flesh. It matters that God meets us where we are and takes us to where he desires us to be. It matters. The incarnation matters because our God is not up in heaven. He's not so far removed from us that he doesn't care about us. He does not just create us and leave us with mild guidance, with little hope of knowing him. No, the incarnation matters. As brethren in Christ, we know that Jesus is fully God. He created all things. He reconciles all things. He draws all things and all people back to himself. We can know him because he has made himself known to us. God is not up there. God has come down. Amen? Amen. But we know that in Jesus we have the fulfillment of all God has promised us. God so loved the world, he sent his son. Jesus so loved us, he came, he lived, and he gave his life for us. As brethren in Christ, we look at brothers and sisters outside the faith and we say, the cross matters, amen? We are not good apart from God. 
I mean, we cannot even know God if he had not and does not keep revealing himself to us every day, every moment, through the word, through his people, through his Holy Spirit. The cross matters because we were dead and incapable of knowing God. We were incapable of being in relationship with him. The crucifixion matters because Jesus said what? What did he say in Gethsemane? Not my will, but yours, God, my Father. Let your will be done. The cross matters because God so loved us, Jesus went to Calvary's tree. The cross matters because Jesus Christ suffered and died to save us. The cross matters because Jesus suffered and died to redeem us. The cross matters because Jesus suffered and died to release us from the shackles of sin from the shackles of of temptation, from the shackles of addiction, but most of all, from the shackles of death. The cross matters because Jesus suffered and died to set you free. The cross matters because Jesus suffered and died to give us a hope and a future. The cross matters because Jesus suffered and died to make it possible for all of us to be reconciled to God our Father but also to one another. The cross matters. The cross matters. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The cross matters. You know, as brethren in Christ, we look at the sisters and brothers outside the faith, and we say the incarnation matters. We say the cross matters. But you know what we also say? The resurrection matters. The empty tomb matters. You know, Peter, Paul said that, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and was raised from the dead on the third day. Remember that Jesus appeared to Peter. We remember that Thomas didn't just doubt, but he touched his wounds. Remember that Mary Magdalene was weeping on the road and, and Jesus came and comforted her. She saw the resurrected Jesus and he comforted her. He provided breakfast for the disciples on the shore. He taught on the Emmaus Road. The resurrected Christ appeared to not one, to not two, to not three, but over 500 believers, including Saul, who he redeemed, who he restored, who he gave a mission, who he gave a future, and you know him as Paul. The cross matters. The incarnation matters. But hallelujah, glory to God, the empty tomb matters. The empty tomb says that the father has approved of the work of his son. The empty tomb says that sin has been defeated once and for all. The empty tomb says, death, oh, where are you, death? You've lost your sting. Satan has lost the war and we have been set free. Yes, we are free. Yes, we are free. Hallelujah. Praise God. You are free. The incarnation matters. The the cross matters. The resurrection matters. The empty tomb says that the work is done. Now, as brethren in Christ, when we think about following Jesus, who came to this earth to make it possible for us to be reconciled to God, to make it possible for us to be reconciled to one another, when we think about Jesus who suffered and died for our sins, when we think about Jesus who was raised from the dead and who left the tomb empty, we commit to that Jesus. We commit to not half-heartedly. We commit to not trying. We commit to wholeheartedly. We commit to wholeheartedly following and living for Jesus. We commit to being obedient to the will of God, just like our Jesus. We commit to being powered by the Holy Spirit, just like our Jesus. We commit to living fully to bring glory to our God and our King, just like our Jesus. I'd like to close with three basic ways that we can commit to Jesus. Three basic ways that we can follow Jesus as his true disciples. Number one, commit to learning about Jesus. 
You cannot follow someone if you don't know the person. You cannot and you must no longer say, oh, I follow Jesus, I believe Jesus, if you do not know Jesus. And maybe, you know, we all have friends that come and go. Followers of Jesus, though, they do not let their relationship with Jesus, what? Come and go. They don't just say they follow him, they get to know him. Followers of Jesus do not just know how Jesus was. They don't just know what the scripture says and and how Jesus used to be. They know what? They know how Jesus is. They know how Jesus is because he's continually walking with them. You know, we always tell the youth, it's exciting. When as a child you say you believe in God, it's great. Believing in God is a good thing. But knowing God is a better thing. And even better than knowing God is becoming a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Amen? You know, this is not just a call to, to set apart time to read your Bible and learn more about God. That's good. This is not just about setting apart time to, to talk to God or to maybe quiet yourself and, and to hear what God has to say to you. That's good, too. This is not even just about coming to church or being the church. This is not just about joining small groups, walking, worshiping, fellowshipping with other believers. Yes, all of that are really, really good things. But learning more about God is about surrendering to God. Amen? It is about saying daily and in every moment of every day, Lord Jesus, you are my master. Take me, mold me, make me more and more like you. Every day and in every moment. It's by getting to know Jesus. It's by getting to know who he is, not just who he was. It is by caring about the people, about the things, about the values that he cares about the people he wants to love, the people, the values he wants to instill in his people. It's not just about knowing who Jesus was, it's about knowing who Jesus is. It's about valuing what Jesus values, obeying all he has shown, and will continue to show you, and doing all he's asked of you. And how do you know what Jesus has asked of you if you do not take the time to know him? How do you know what Jesus has asked of you if you do not take the time to get to know him. The second basic way we can follow Jesus as true disciples is to develop different patterns of living. This means offering up our minds, our bodies, our hopes and dreams, our everyday scenes, our families, our spouses, our children, our friendships, our time, our jobs, our skills, our gifts, our abilities. It means offering our money. It means offering our everything. It means offering up our everything to Jesus as a holy sacrifice for his glory and for our betterment. It means offering our everything to Jesus always, not just some of the time, but always every single day, every single moment. It means not conforming to the ways of the world around us. It means continually transforming our minds so that we can have the mind of Christ, so that we can think, so that we can live, and so that we can be like Jesus our Christ. It means setting our eyes on the things that are above, not on things of the earth. It means living for our Father's kingdom and not our own. It means saying no to the person you once were and becoming more like the person God created you to be every day and in every single moment. It means surrendering to Jesus each day by living in full obedience to what he asks of you and giving him the final say always and in everything. The third and final basic way we can follow Jesus as his true disciples is perhaps the most important. Learn to submit to the Holy Spirit. 
As Christians, we must move from simply knowing the Holy Spirit is God. We must graduate from simply just knowing the Holy Spirit dwells in the heart of every believer. We must graduate from only letting the Spirit in, from only uh, feeling the Spirit or listening to the Spirit at times we want to let Him in, or at times that we want to feel Him, at times when we want to listen. No, as followers of Jesus, we must daily and in every waking moment submit to the Holy Spirit. True disciples of Jesus submit to the Holy Spirit every day and in all things. They submit to the Holy Spirit and get transformed. And you know how they get transformed? Because they start to look and sound and walk and talk and live and breathe like Jesus our Christ. They live by the Spirit and they're led and guided by the Spirit. They learn to hear the Spirit's voice more clearly each day. And perhaps the greatest part about submitting to the Spirit each day is that if you do your part, God's going to do his. Amen. You want to be successful in learning about Jesus? Submit to the Holy Spirit each day. You want to know Jesus and build your relationship with him? Submit to the Holy Spirit each day. You want to grow in your reading and understanding and living the scriptures? You're hearing the word, your relationships, your life, your kids, your family? Submit to the Spirit each day. You want to develop a new pattern of living? Submit to the Holy Spirit each day. You want to know how it's possible to give your everything to God each day? Submit to the Holy Spirit. You want to know how to not conform to the ways of thinking in this big bad world all around you? Submit to the Holy Spirit each day. If you want to be transformed, if you want to set your eyes on the things above, if you want to live for our Father's glory, if you want to help usher in his kingdom, submit to the Holy Spirit each day. If you want to start and keep on saying no to the person you once were, if you want to start becoming the person you were created to be, submit to the Holy Spirit each day. As Tim starts playing, I'd like to call up the worship team if they're coming up or, and, and the intercessors as well. You know, we're going to close by singing I Surrender All. Now, I couldn't think of a better song to talk about our Jesus and, and the joy of his obedience than, than simply I Surrender All. The altar will be open for anyone who needs prayer. However, I'd like to give a special invitation. I stretched you last time. We're going to stretch you again. Last time I preached, I encouraged you all to find someone perhaps you didn't know as well to pray with. And we did a really good job with that. So we're going to do a little different today. Today, I want you to do something a little different. I want you to find someone you know and trust. Now, the good news is you came with someone, hopefully, to church. The bad news is if you don't think you know someone to trust, it's a safe place here. We all love you. We all love one another. So you can pray with the person next to you. But find someone you know and trust. And as they sing, as people come up for prayer, I want you to do that. That's the easy part. Here's the hard part. I'd like you to confess with that person you're praying one thing you need to surrender to God. Maybe it's your future. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's trust. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's control. We all got something. Just find one. Confess it to your brother and sister. Let them pray for you. And then listen as they pray for you, as you pray for them as well. So find one person to pray with. Confess one thing you want to surrender. And let's pray together. Let's surrender all to Jesus this morning.
song called Lead Me to Calvary, and the chorus simply goes, Lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. Our finally gracious God, as we go forward, help us to remember that even in Jesus' most human condition, even when he was at the lowest and he knew what was ahead of him, he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. God, we pray that prayer for our lives. In everything that we say and do and every decisions we make as we go forward, let us be a people who say, not my will, but your will be done. God, we thank you for your love for us. Teach us how to live like Jesus our Christ. Teach us how to live in love like him. Teach us how to love you more and love one another. In your holy and precious name, amen. Just real quick, um, the communication task force is going to be having the pizza lunch, so if you can stay for that, please do. Thank you. Amen. All right. Boo, click us off. So just be the